and welcome to the Flix Forum podcast, where each episode we go back and we look at a Netflix original film in the order of release. Today, we've got Netflix's 118th film. It's the 2018 American French experimental film, The Other Side of the Wind. It's directed by Orson Welles, stars John Huston, Bob Random, Peter Bogdanovich, Susan Stradberg, and Oya Kodar. I am Jesse, and I'm joined with MJ. How are you? I'm very well. It's pretty cool doing an Austin Wells movie, knowing that we set up this podcast to do Netflix original films and we're currently up to the 2018 releases and we're doing an Austin Wells film. It's, yeah, who, who would have thought um, that, you know, if we had a started back at the start that, you know, you'd be able to um, to say, look, we've, we've done an Austin Wells film as a Netflix original. Um, yeah, crazy. crazy. You crazy. kind of have to shift shift your mind a little bit as well because... One thing that we don't have to really discuss is the fact that uh, all these films were filmed today, you know, more or less. And it, it throws a little bit of a spanner in, in the way that we approach it. So um, it's been it's been quite refreshing. I feel what, 118 films have just been taken out of my little comfort zone that I built for myself for this one. That's a really good point that you make too. Like, you know, the, the footage from this is you know, 99.9% from the 70s. So, um, mm. yeah, a lot of context behind the the narrative and bits and pieces that we you probably visually see on the screen um, throughout that, you know, might not be as crucial today um, when we talk about some scenes and things probably, but, um, yeah, really good context behind this. And I guess that's a good call out to um, spoilers. So if you, if you want to watch this one, um, give us a pause and, and come back later because we're going to jump into quite a bit about this one uh, very shortly. Yep, good call. Last week's time, this is where we quickly give our own little summary of what we think. So what have you got for us, MJ? Yeah, this is, a, again, another different sort of fast flicks. But look, the, the story follows uh, an old school uh, Hollywood director who's throwing a screening party for his unfinished film for the cast, the crew, and the media. Uh, as he works through with his entourage to navigate potential issues with the production throughout this boozy affair. Good. Yeah, um, I've gone exactly the same film, but I've gone the movie within the movie side of things, I guess, oh, is the, the way I'm putting it. So, yeah. like, realistically, it's two movies. It's it's a film it which is. is made by um, a documentary cameraman, which is the story of the director's last day of life, and then you've also got the director who's making the film, which is broken down because of this lack of funds. So I guess that's the, the two films within the one film. Um, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a good call yeah. out. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting way of looking at it, I guess, but I, I like yours as well. They're, they're both good, different ways of looking at it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So what, what can you get, tell us about the background of this one? What's some um, some history or development or pre-production? This has got a long uh, <laughs> check of history. Yeah, I mean, like, this is insane, right? And I, I'll, I'll try and keep it brief for this point, but there'll certainly be things we want to pick out and talk to. Um in a nutshell, I don't know if you can do this in a nutshell, shooting for this film began in 1970 um, for what Orson Welles intended to be his own Hollywood comeback. And that production basically resumed on and off until 1976. So as far as we could tell, Welles continued to intermittently work on this project into the 80s, but it became embroiled in legal, financial, political complications which presented, prevented sorry, the film from ever being completed. So Orson Welles passed away in 1985. Um, and by that point, the filming was completed and, and several attempts were made at trying to reconstruct this unfinished film. 
And then that didn't work. So flash forward to 2014 and the rights for this production were acquired by Royal Road and the project was overseen by Peter Bogdanovich, as you mentioned in the cast, uh, and producer Frank Marshall. So the other side of the wind, which is this film, had its world premiere at the 75th Venice International Film Festival on the 31st of August 2018. It was then released on November 2, 2018 by Netflix, uh, and it was also accompanied by a documentary called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, which is to do with the making of this film. And probably the main thing is that it holds the record for the longest production time in history at 48 years. So I've spoken about that for about 45 to 60 seconds, but we're talking about a 48-year production story. So there's probably a whole bunch of things that you might want to pull out <laughs> from that to talk through. Yeah, I think you've done a really good job of uh, simplifying it as best as possible for our audience because um, there is so much that we could discuss and talk about this one. And I guess... Um, I watched, I don't know if you did, did you watch the, the Love Me When I'm Dead um, doco? I didn't. I had every intention of doing it, um, but I didn't. And I, I'm glad that you did because I'm keen to pick your brain on it. Yeah, I think um, it probably gives a lot more background into the, I guess, all the things that you've said and and all the, the little bits and pieces about, you know, specific, specifics about the film and, you know, the, and there's also another Netflix did a, um, another 38 minute short as well, that they released. Um, it's not actually on Netflix in Australia, um, which I found a little bit um, oh. confusing, but it is a Netflix um, short film called um, A Final Cut for Orson. And it, it, it sort of um, takes what's in They'll Love Me When I'm Dead and expands a little bit further, more about the nitty gritty um, sides of the production sort of thing. So, you know, the, how a majority of the audio was was shot and and the the processes that they went to to try and extract the audio of the of of the files that they did have and then you know getting in um you know getting in family members to to do dubs and and, and extra audio it's, it's just such an incredible yes. story about how this was put together um but i highly recommend um giving it a squeeze if you can um the i guess the and and they speak to the most of the surviving people that that are still alive that, that feature in this film so it's quite a, yeah. a a good bunch of interviews with in particular um peter bogdanovich who had a big part in, in sort of getting this resurrected and making sure that um, it was able to be seen because as you mentioned before, you know, you've got these legal issues that, um, you know, it was because of um, the Iranian Iranian revolution mm. and, and, you know, the, the, the finance came from um, some of the family there. So it ended up being locked in these vaults in France for so many years without being able to be touched. And then, um, you know, the French legal system sort of classified and said these you know, the, the, the director isn't the owner of the, the work, the producer is, and, um, you know, the, the, the trust of Orson Welles had a say in it as well. So it's just an incredible effort to get all these people eventually to come together, work on this together and say, yes, let's get a vision of this out so people can actually see it, um, which I think is uh, a really, really good thing about this story. Have you, have you got, I've got heaps of other stuff we could talk about, but I don't know whether, whether you want to. Oh, look, it's if it's what if it's whatever you think is going to be relevant to this conversation and to our listeners, to be honest, Jesse. But do, do do you get the impression that Netflix venturing into this deal had a lot to do with the fact that they there needed to be an accompanying documentary? Do you think they basically said we'll fund what you need for the completion of this film, but you need to provide us with a doco that we can um, that we can bring to it as well? That's a pretty fair point because. Uh, the, the docker is is so interesting and I think you know Netflix 
2018 sort of stage, you know, we're hitting, we're hitting that stage where they're starting to get, you know, the next couple of episodes, we're going to hit some big films. This is where Netflix are starting to take their features quite seriously. But yeah, I agree with what you're saying. I think that this stage was where they're having some pretty good successes with docos as well. Um, and I, I mean, the appeal of having a, a doco um, on this is would be a, a good thing for Netflix to say, we, we, we want that because if we're going to give you the money for the film, we want that as well. Um, and, you know, there's, there's some famous people that had tried previously to, to sort of crowdfund it, like Wes Anderson's and Noah Bornbach's and, um, you know, they, they just couldn't get the, the funding, I guess, that we know mm. that Netflix is able to provide and, you know, the amount of debt that they're in and stuff. They, this is why, because they do things like this that um, probably would never have been able to be done without their finances. It's a good point too. And, and it's the perfect platform to be able to release that in, conduct, in conjunction with this movie that's been heavily talked about and heavily scrutinised for its production and then to release that with a documentary. If a bigger studio did this, they don't have that platform. Well, you know what, in 2020, 2021, maybe some of them do, but um, Netflix at the time was the only one that had the perfect platform to release them both at the same time. You're not going to have these both released in a cinema at the same time and, and have any sort of success. So um, you think without something like Netflix or without the uh, – the building up of streaming and the the normal use of people streaming this probably doesn't actually happen so it's it's pretty fascinating and, and the struggle that the wells had and this was in in bits and pieces of these the docos that accompany this like he was a desperate man to get this out like this was this this piece of work was was you know at the afi awards where he was given this life achievement award and they have this footage in i can't remember which one of the docos it was but they have the footage of him getting up on stage saying, you know, thank you for, for this award, pretty um, condescending to the audience that's there and goes, hey, um, thank you for the award, but I'm going to show you some footage of my new film because you didn't, didn't have anyone backing it at the stage and you needed a distributor. So it, it's one of the weirdest things you'll ever see. It's just, it's just, <laughs> wow. just this crazy thing that sort of goes in behind. The, the, this, this film is such an analogy for exactly what was happening in, in Wells' life, like we mentioned at the start, uh, which it's just so canny. Um, Uncanny. Um, yeah. Mm. It's the story that he wanted told. Yeah. All right. Well, I've, I've, I've got other stuff, but I reckon we should probably keep moving and um, sort of yeah. uh, look, look into the consensus for this one. What, what were the critics and, and people saying? Yeah, this is – look, it, it's a 6.8 out of 10 on IMDb. Uh, that's over 6,000 ratings. Pretty small, to be honest. Um Considering the the punch that it does have behind it, I would have expected the the six thousand ratings to be higher. But six point eight out of ten is a great score. Um, and on Letterbox, there's actually double the amount of ratings on Letterboxd, and that really shows you how much this film is, is pegged towards your more film lovers and and I guess historians of cinema as well in that sense. But it's a three point seven out of five on Letterboxd, so uh, still really really good scores. Um, from those general sort of formats and people people like this film from from what I can tell there. Yeah, um, the Google users had it about 77%, so very similar um, there. And Rotten Tomatoes had it at 84 on nearly 100 reviews, so um, certified fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, audience had it a lot lower, though, 58% um, on okay. 30-odd. So, yeah, big, 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 there's a multitude of differences there, I guess, across what people are thinking. Yeah, I reckon Netflix would have liked a few more eyeballs on it, to be honest. Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Did um, did you want to go into early thoughts? 
this one? Yeah, I will. I will. Um, look, look I, I have to. I, I almost have to say that I, I, I feel a little bit ill-equipped to pass judgment on this film. Like not, not being a proper Orson Welles connoisseur or having enough history on his work and his life, because I feel that so much of this film, and and so much that's reflected in this film has obvious parallels between himself and and Hannaford in the film. So. You obviously have his innate knowledge of the industry, the truth, the lies, the hanger honorers, the politics, the legacy. There's so much more to this film than meets the eye. And and one viewing with what I'm going to call myself a, a bit of a shoddy education on the topic of Orson Welles leaves me more intrigued than fulfilled from watching this film. But but I liked it. Um, as I said, more hanging on with intrigue than anything else. Like the insight into Hollywood at this time was fascinating. And I think this would probably offer a lot from a rewatch. Yeah, you, you, you put it really well. I think that I, I couldn't agree more. The, the, the first word I wrote down and I kept coming back to this throughout was hectic in capital letters. This film was hectic. It was a minefield. Mm. It was, there was so much in this to just, to dissect, to look at. Um, but it was, I still, I enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed mm. it. And I, I haven't been this impressed with a Netflix film for a long time, I think. And, I, and I'm not sure whether this is, and like you mentioned, like this was filmed over six years and, you know, just the stories of being able to keep that cast together over that amount of time, yeah. replace people, film the whole thing without your main protagonist, the whole, most, most of the time, like well stepped in to play the main, like the, just the background behind the ability to, to put this together, have such a reflection on, um, certain parts of his own life, um, even though, you know, you closely said, you know, I don't, don't think I, you know, I want to say this is my last sort of film, but um, yeah, I, I agree with you. This is something that I probably need to watch three or four more times to have a proper opinion on this because there's just so much to take. Yeah. And truly understand the history of, of him and his work and his philosophies because it's all in there. You just got to unpack it. All right. Time to talk about some characters. Yeah, look, I think, look, there's a lot there, but I think it's probably best to start with Jake Hannaford, um, played by John Huston. And the idea that this man is more than anything else, he's a creator and, and he likes to let things play out and work with it on the fly to some extent. He never looks too far ahead. He's not a great planner. He surrounds himself with people to keep it in check. Whether they actually do or not is another question. Um but you get the feeling throughout all this, he's not particularly close with anyone. Uh, it, the art in him rules his life. And then you combine that with the booze and the partying. And that lifestyle seems to trump any sort of desire that he has to truly connect with people, um, which is which is obviously a commentary and criticism of, of what was happening in, in Hollywood or in the, in the film industry at the time. Yeah, I think. Oh, really, really good things that you bring up because, uh, I mean, if you're looking at this as a reflection of Wells's life, you'd almost say this is him, the, the person that's been in exile, having to make films in Europe and, and coming back to America. And this is that, you know, his, his first film back. And, um, yeah, I, I don't really have an awful lot more to add to what you're saying because I think that that closeness that you speak about with him, um, you know, that is almost mystical. Um, throughout the, the first stage of the film, you saw this this person that you've referenced so many times, and it is a while before you you, you meet him. Um, but yeah, he's got that that aura that everyone wants to know him, everyone wants a piece mm. of him. But at the same time, does he actually have that, that piece in return of, of anyone? Um, 
and that, that adds to that idea you're speaking about that those connections are probably lacking. Mm. Yeah, it's a great point. People talk oh. about him more than he actually talks about himself. Def- yeah, definitely. Um, you only you only draw these little bits and pieces throughout about you know his background and, and what he's like, and um, yeah, I get yeah these slow reveals of, of of the inside of who he could possibly be and and why things are reflected in his work because that's what a majority of white people know it's, it's about his work not that not necessarily about him mm, not who he is yeah um i had the i think she was classified as the actress on um the online sites played by um Oya Koda, called pocahontas throughout the film and and things like that and, and wells's real life girlfriend at that time also um co-writer of this film as well and i just wanted to highlight that no dialogue of this character um which I think was important because this was the only character that bought. And at the start, I spoke about these being two films in one or two two movies in one. And I think it was important that she was the only person that brought the two stories together. She was the only one that had that connection or that commonality between the, the fictional film that's on the screen and this this real life party that's happening. So it was just nice to have that that connection in that story. Without her, probably would have been missing a little bit. So that that was what I saw her as. What's interesting about her is that she's the star of this film. Um, sorry, the film within a film. And and watching it, she she feels like a fully-fledged movie star. She has that presence about her on screen. But not once outside of that does she ever feel like she's a star. Like At the party, she blends in as much, if not more, than anybody else, which is... You know, I kind of take that almost as a reflection on the way women were treated in the industry at the time. And here's this woman that I'm watching this film within a film, finally seeing her in real life at this party and gravitating towards her, whereas no one else is. And as you said, she doesn't even have a line of dialogue. Obviously, the film within a film is a different story, but even in the party, we don't even hear her talk. She's nothing, even though to me, she's a star. Yeah. And I also like that, um, was it John, John Dale, the, the leading man in this film, he, he mm. didn't have any dialogue either. So I think that was a really, a really good, um, like the good symmetry in that that film within the film. That he, you know, if he had a couple of lines, that would have completely thrown that whole um, understanding of her character. So I really, I thought that was that was nice. Yeah. Who have you got next? Uh, Brooks Otterlake, played by Peter Bogdanovich, and he's he's the cocky and he's the charismatic one. His relationship to Jake is really interesting. He appears to idolize the man like he basically owes everything to him. And he's he's quietly insecure despite his public bravado, um, which might be more of a facade than what the man truly is. And I kind of like that we do get a slight insight into his insecurities um, closer to the end. But there's, yeah, th- that, that, that cockiness to him really stands out and, you know, this is Mr. Hollywood, everything's going fine, I can do anything I want, but underneath the water he's paddling hard and trying to keep afloat. Yeah, just that. I, I think I enjoyed that, you know, the, he's like the, the starry-eyed thoughts towards um, Hannaford from the start and then you sort of see this slowly disintegrate um, throughout towards the end where you've got this climax where that relationship's sort of untenable now and... Um, yeah, I enjoyed him probably most as a character throughout this film. He feels somewhat relatable, doesn't he, in, in a weird mm. way? Yeah, in a very weird way. Because yeah, um, I'm certainly not living my life like he is. <laughs> uh, I've got um, Julie Rich down here as well, who's the, the critic, I guess. Um, mm. 
second, I just I just thought like it was just like she seemed to enjoy annoying Hannaford at every chance that she had, and um, and you know this this reflects closely with uh, Wells's sort of relationship that um, he had with a um, with a, a or a public feud with an actual lady in real life called Pauline, um, who was writing this essay and it was a controversial essay, and um, she claimed that he didn't actually write Susan Kane. So that's just a reflection of. Um, this, this real-life person that, that um, Wells was having an issue with in real life he sort of tried to have the same sort of character on screen, which was interesting. It wasn't Pauline Kale, was it? Yeah, Pauline Kale, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, look, to me, the Julie Rich character, she was, she was probably one of the only characters who appeared to escape this moth caught in a flame psyche of this whole crowd at this party. She could, she could actually see the gaps and the holes that were existing she knew that there was something that wasn't right about the production, about the whole John Dale saga. She kept the film, and when I say film, I mean the other side of the wind film. She kept the film somewhat grounded and she was a little bit of uh, explicit commentary on what was going wrong in this picture. Um, and that felt kind of real as well. Like we talked about um, Otter Lake being relatable. She was relatable in the sense that I felt like she wasn't in the, the crowd and she was the one that was trying to highlight the problems with it. Yeah. Um, who else have you got? I've got Billy Boyle, who was played by Norman Foster. And I actually felt like he was quite a tragic character, like just the, the yes man, really, more than anything else. And he never quite seem, seems to quite understand the big picture, but he'll do what he's told to help the team. And then you kind of get into it and you wonder, does anybody actually care about him? doesn't seem like it. And and it's kind of reflective of that whole crowd in general and, and who actually or genuinely cares for one another in this whole scene. And he's a man that would do anything for you all. But as soon as he starts drinking, everyone's just like, ah, oh, whatever. I don't care that you're a recovering alcoholic. You should have a drink sort of thing. And it, it's kind of sad. Yeah. They, they definitely played him as like a, as a, as a stooge or a clown and, I think the, the the commentary I liked on this was he was a, a you know a former child actor and it's almost like this reflection on child actors and 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 how little support they get in the industry after you know they've had their five minutes of fame as a kid and and we can see that through so many different examples of of young kids who you know star in these big big features and then end up you know down and out so yeah I, th- I thought it was a, another interesting little piece to this huge puzzle I guess of this whole film. Yeah, no, exactly. And look, the other I do want to talk about John Dale. Uh, we, we touched him before, but it sort of begs the question, is is he the only guy that kind of escaped the clutches of Hannaford? Like, he left before Hannaford had the chance to eat him up and spit him out like he does with everybody else. And that's kind of why Hannaford is so uh, taken by the fact that Dale's gone. It's got nothing to do with the production. It's got nothing to do with the movie. It's the fact that I didn't get my chance to eat him up and spit him out. Yeah, very, very good point. I've got some questions around their relationship for later on, I reckon, which uh, might lead a bit, little bit further into, into um, Dale's character because, yeah, very intriguing one. I like uh, the sound the, of that. Yeah, the last one I had was the, the Zara character, um, who's that sort of old retired sort of lady that you we got a few... Um, little flashbacks and she's based on one of Wells's old friends um, who he wanted to play the role but couldn't get her to play the role and it was just interesting that all of those shots were shot in in Europe while they were doing the rest of these shots yeah. um, 
in America. Just just the the magic of filmmaking at times. Um, just so I cool. saw that too. Yeah. Just because she was in Europe, like yeah. I, I find it interesting with Zara as a character because this this was her place, right? Like, in, in effect, it was her party almost. Um, but she still exists in the shadow of the power that Hannaford creates. And it's, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it, it's not an, if you really break this down, he hasn't got a lot of nice things to say about Hannaford, which is interesting because you could draw a lot of parallels between Hannaford and Wells. And is, is this an example of Wells being like, well, I might have achieved a lot in my life, but not a lot that I'm very proud of. I don't know. But th- there's just a lot to dissect here in every single piece. Mm, good. Any other characters? No, not, not that are probably worth talking about. But again, if I watch it again, I'd probably find something else. Something else. Yeah. Well, this is probably we could talk briefly about Wells um, and his sort of previous works and things like that. Now, you know, he's got a hundred. I know him from a lot of films in it where he's acting as well. So, you know, he's done 130 roles that he's that he's been a part of 62 directing credits 69 writing credits produced 26 features and 155 credits as playing himself just like you know talk shows and things like that um i just thought it was really interesting that you know so much of this film reflects things that actually happened in his life like the suicide of the father not interested in making money from the features that he's making that was another reflection um and then you know struggling with the funding too and and that was a big part of this film was the inability of his team to, to to get the funds together for um for the for the, for the rest you know the, the rest of the money and you know I, I think that's why it took six years to make this film because you know they'd, they'd film for 10 days and then would be like okay i've got to go act in this feature to get the cash to get to yeah this film. like it's just it's just crazy yeah. so crazy <laughs> but that's why when you when he makes it really explicit that this is based on his life before admitting that this is not based on his life almost. It, it's kind of, he's really trying to mess with you. At the end of the day, this is still art and everyone draws in their own experiences to create art. But then partly you want to watch this going, oh, this is autobiographical from Orson Welles and this is what he's saying happened. And then he's literally saying this is not autobiographical. It, it, it's it's just, I guess you got to take out what you can out of it and whatever you think. And that's, again, that's the way of dissecting art. Yes. Exactly. Um, let's talk about some scenes. What are some ones that stood out for you? Yeah, look, I probably don't have a lot here because as you sort of mentioned at the start, it is hectic. It's, it's hard to to pick and choose and take things out of it. But I have to say as a whole, I was really fascinated by the film within a film. I, I would have loved to have sat down and watched it from the pieces that we saw. It was difficult to, to put it all together uh, narratively and, and it, with any sort of flow on, but uh, it certainly piqued my interest probably more than anything else in, in the movie that we watched. So I was definitely fascinated by the film within a film. Um, and then there was a line of dialogue, which I think sums everything up perfectly. And we've probably spoken to it a little bit, but talking about Hannaford and, and I can't remember who it was now that said it, but he said everything he creates, he must destroy. Um, he talks about the people being fireflies and those who are in his light. He chews them up whole, but he chews them really slowly. So it's kind of like you can hang on as long as you want and I'm still going to use you the way I want to use you. And when I'm done with you, you're gone. And it's just, it was really, it was such a great analogy. And as soon as I heard it, you just watch the whole film differently and you reflect on the whole film differently because that's what this man is doing the whole time. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just love listening to you retell that. That was, that was really good. Um, <laughs> I, um, <laughs> and I'm the same, like, it was, I think that the majority of things that, that I enjoyed were from the film in the film. Um, because they're probably more of the the cinematic style things that you that we saw. True. Um, yeah. I thought that the intro was quite impressive itself. Those short, quick little cuts to introduce what was going on. While there's this hectic voiceover of, um, uh, was it? It was Otter Lake, wasn't it? Yeah, in the, Otter Lake. In the future, yeah, Otter Lake. In the future, as an old man, and that was actually Peter Bogdanovich who recorded Peter that voiceover um, later because Wells was going to record the audio but never did. Um, so that was. Oh, that's just another little side thing. I've read, I've read and watched so much on this film that there's just little <laughs> that, that come out of this game. But I thought that was an, an, an impressive little intro. Um, <laughs> some of these trippy scenes, like that nightclub scene and then the bathroom and sort of like these, each cubicle had a different sort of couple in there. Oh, and I, yeah. just, I just thought that that was visually quite stunning where you just get that occupied click on each of the doors as they go through. I thought that was, that was a, a cool little look. I'm just going to say... Um, I was going to say the car sex scene. Um, that was that was something like I was not expecting, and I don't think I've seen anything like it. But it was done quite impressively. Um, yeah, just I agree. Like the intrigue that you get, like who's the bloke driving the car, and where did it, where does it all fit in, and why does he kick him out? Oh yeah, it's I want to watch that, that movie. Movie, yeah. and uh, finally that that chase between um, Dale and the actress through that building site just. That editing was so cool that you didn't know who was chasing who. Um, there was those cool shadowy sort of bars that looked like they were running towards each other, but they were running apart. That was just visually so impressive. Um, I'm glad that you've taken the time to break down that film within a film a little bit and, and talk about the the technical feats of it because it's almost like Orson Welles wanted to – he's got this commentary on the industry – but he still wants to flex his directing chops where he can, and and he's making a basically a mockumentary almost. But it's it's you know, it's got that documentary feel to it. So there's nothing too sexy or fun to really highlight what you can actually do with a camera and in an editing suite. But he still allows the part of this narrative to have a film within a film that he can be like, look at the skills I still got. I still want to show off what I've got, and it's it's pretty pretty impressive. Yes, good. Is there anything that you didn't like in this one? Uh, to be honest, I found myself quite confused by the opening that you mentioned before, that description of Hannaford making this movie. And only because it was so close to what was happening with this reimagining of Wells' work. And I kind of wasn't too sure whether the movie was starting or this was still just a, a lingering introduction. And, and again, like if I watched it again, then I could watch that scene differently. But obviously there's a text on the screen at the start explaining how we got to this point with Orson Welles. And then we start talking about how, oh, he's a director making it. I'm like, hang on, didn't, didn't I just read this? Like it just, I found it really sharp and, and abrupt. But um, again, that's just on me. I figured it out eventually. Yeah, I um, like on a rewatch, you're right. It, it, it so much <laughs> good, but I, I just like the way that it distinguished. Like it was, it was, it was just like it made me think straight away. I'm like, hang on, is this, like this story is the same as like it? Yeah, I, I go with that's that. that's that's yeah. what gets you because it's the same story. So, and look, the only other thing, and I think this is deliberate. I just had a little bit of an issue figuring out where everyone fit in. You know, I, I wasn't quite sure who was media, who was part of the cast and crew, and uh, and I think that was deliberate because it was creating that hectic vibe that you spoke about. Um, but it made it a little bit difficult to try and latch on um, to some characters, which I don't think he wanted me to anyway. So um, 
worth yeah. worth. And look, it's not a good thing or a bad thing, but I felt like watching this, I was continuously learning and figuring it all out and trying to stay on course uh, because my intrigue was rife throughout the whole thing. So I, I was working pretty hard to stay with this one. Um, and again, that's why I'd probably benefit again from a rewatch. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. The, you have to work very, very hard to keep up with what's going on. And then I'm sure there are parts that I didn't fully get or grasp because there's times where you're just like, hang on, who are they again and what relation do they have and what side mm. are they on and, and what's their connection? And I think um, to me it sort of started in that bus at the start with the mannequins, like the weird the weird dolls. And I was like, hang on, what's going on here? Why is this guy getting told off? Why is he getting kicked off? And then they're intercutting yeah. between the the screening room with the, the the studio executive, and I'm like, I'm trying so hard to tie this together. I'm like, look, looking back, I get it now, but as an just like, and I think that's why I kept running out hectic, hectic. What the hell is going on? So that's my only sort of little criticism too is that, and it um, would be less hectic if you watched it again because mm-hmm. now you kind of know the flow. Now you know what's happening. You can actually just sit back and take it in. Yep, definitely. All right, well, what's this one trying to say? What are some themes or some ideas? And, and to be honest, we've discussed a lot of this anyway, um, just the way we've been talking about characters and scenes and, and the meaning behind it all. But I think in general there's a big idea about creation and, and perception and, and where all that sort of fits in. Um, and with creation comes the idea of art and, and what is art. And uh, we spoke before about Orson Welles's somewhat autobiographical story here but then again it is a piece of art which you're supposed to translate however you want to translate it um there's obviously a a it's not even really a criticism more a discussion on the commercialization of film and the intrigue that he's gone through a lot of that in his career and was going through that whilst making this film and the characters in this film were having that same issue and then finally, there's this whole vibe of hedonism throughout the whole film and everyone living that lifestyle that let's keep living large and then till tomorrow comes and we'll live large again and who cares about our future kind of thing. It's just party, party, party. Yeah, good. Yeah, the, the same sorts of things like that mirror of, of his life almost where, and this is throughout too, you've got this industry that's being taken over by this younger generation. You've got this old guy that has obviously been there the, the center of the universe for a lot of a lot of these people and you've got all these up-and-coming people that can be just as successful so it's almost like this satire of Hollywood and the passing of this old Hollywood and and that final scene of the drive-in too it's like you know the drive-in was seen you know the 70s this is the death of cinema like why aren't people dressing up nicely to come out on a Saturday night and and have a night out when you know they're going in the backseat of a car and, and making out with people and you see this throughout this film too sort of sexualization and often mm. um, I haven't seen in a lot of the Wells films that I have seen. Um, and, and to me, that was a big difference. And that's why probably that scene took me a bit because from the films I have seen of his, I've only seen like, you know, maybe four or five, but that graphicness, I don't think I'd, I'd seen. So yeah, big commentary there. And and this, you know, overpowering media too. Everyone in this film selling each other out. They're all they're all trying to make a buck for themselves or, or, or up themselves yeah. as best as they possibly can. Um, and there's a bit of betrayal in these friendships and these relationships as well. Um, and in particular, this, this idea of masculinity too, like the, the image of the phallus or the, the, the male genitals throughout. Um, there's quite a few scenes where there's dolls with them or there's, there's mm. yeah, there's lots of these visuals of it. And I guess that I like this take, I guess that 
it's, uh, this film is about a massive prick. Um, <laughs> and, and, and Jake is a prick. And, and that's that, this whole idea of this film. And I, I want to watch it again because I want to see, like I, off the top of my head, I can think of three or four times where I saw this image of, of the male genitalia. I reckon it'd be there throughout a bit more if I went back and again. Yeah, that's not a bad take. Oh, what did you take? What else did you take from this one? <laughs> yeah, look, the, the main takeaway for me is that this, this film really was like no other. And I think a lot of that has to do with the story behind making it and the fact that it got released in 2018 um, and how it all came to be. But uh, also with the idea that uh, such a big uh, personality in the film industry is almost like laying down his cards and his last piece of work to really highlight his issues that he had with the industry. Um, and I think in general for me, I, I just, I enjoy movies about Hollywood um, where you do get a bit of an insight into what it's all about. And this is basically Orson Welles' take on it um, from a lifetime doing it. And and I guess I, I, you don't want to say it's just from a lifetime. He obviously took some time out and that was his reflection on it during that time and then he came back and said well this is a story i want to tell about it um but still fascinating yeah i i'm just going to echo what we've already said i guess where you know it's not necessarily the easiest watch um you have to concentrate so i think for me if you did want to give this a crack you need to, to yeah to set aside some time to actually concentrate and, and think about it but it's still pretty excellent yeah, I had no idea what to expect when I pushed play. I had no idea. I, I, I heard that this film, I, I knew that there was an Orson Welles film that wasn't finished, that got finished and was now on Netflix. And that was all I knew. So I didn't realise I was going to have to work so hard. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's very, very similar. Uh, did you jump onto IMDb to check anything out? I didn't because I think I was working too hard to, to cruise into it. Yeah, I'm the same. Um, question time. Do you have anything you wanted to ask? I got one. It's kind of multi-pronged. How do you think this movie looks if it was set in 2020? Um, and there's two schools of thought. One being, have things really changed with the idea of hedonism and with the idea of hanger honorers and entourages and people's yes man, all that kind of thing. But also the idea of the old cinema and the new cinema sort of coming together. Does it does it look any different in 2020 if this film's made? It's a good, very good question. I think um, there's probably parts in the film that wouldn't fly just narrative-wise and character-wise with some of the the dialogue and the um, derogatory comments um, in certain scenes towards one of the I think it's uh, Dale's old teacher. I think that scene was a little bit um, not not kosher for today, but at the same time, I think that that was also having a bit of commentary on on Wells and, and Hollywood as well that and maybe it needed to be in there and it could be in there today just worded differently mm. because it, it is talking about this idea that you know there's it shouldn't matter um what sexuality sexuality you're into and those types of things but uh, yeah I think you make a really good point that it'd be really hard to to do this in a different way. I mean um you maybe update the locations and the sets but you could probably make exactly the same film trying to say the same messages. Or maybe you could that's the thing and I wonder if you know, someone who has been around and been really successful in the industry is now looking back on everything and, and seeing it that way. And whether it's the exact same events happening or not, or whether it's just it's, there's still a toxicness to this industry that we want to highlight. I don't know. I, you and I don't work in the industry where we observe it from afar, but um, 
yeah, I'd, I'd love it if Spielberg one day decided to to do a similar kind of thing um, from his own draw from his own experiences and, and do something like this. Just and he might he might see things very differently. Um, but it's just it's an interesting thought. This one, this leads on a little bit to what you're saying too. Obviously, forty years since a lot of this footage was taken. Do you think the editors of this film should be put on as co-directors because they are heavily influencing about 100 hours of footage to, to cycle mm. through? Um, if Orson Welles was still around, I'm sure he would more than likely made a completely different cut. Like the the the, the I guess the underlying narrative is going to be the same, but do you think that they had more of an influence in the final product because it was done um, in 2018? Um, yeah, look, it's really hard to say without knowing the amount of direction that was within um, Orson Welles' notes and how much we knew. You know, we don't know whether he's, I don't know whether he's storyboards or anything like that. But I, look, I think even so, a lot of a lot of editors these days probably do similar sort of work without as much call from the director and they're not co-directors. But it's an interesting thought. It's Yeah, it's a very different situation that you can't run something by the director. Yeah, maybe co-director is not the right word, but some different sort of title that, mm. you know, yeah, I don't know. I just I, yeah, I just felt like it was, yes, it's an Orson Welles film, Orson Welles film, but it's such mm. a long time like ago that this was put together that, yeah, there's something that... A lot of hands touched it mm. and a lot of people made it what you saw on the screen. Yeah, yeah it's a good exactly. Point. There you go. Um, I, the other thing I wanted to ask you was, so we start off with the understanding that, the end of this party is a car accident. Was the car accident a suicide because of how that night went for Jake? Or, you know, he, he didn't get the funding for this film. Um, at the end of that drive-in, he tries to get Dale to come in the car. It's his final rejection from Dale. He's already been rejected on set. Dale's rejected him again. Is this, is this a suicide or was it an accident? My thought? And it's obviously very much left up for interpretation. I think it's an accident, but they want to give you as much evidence as you can that it can be a suicide. But the Jake I know isn't interested in a lot of that sort of stuff, doesn't care, will continue to go with the flow. But you could definitely argue both sides. But I, I, I think it's an accident. Yeah. I, like you said, I think with the, the amount of alcohol that... Um, in he took that night um it could be interpreted either way but i just yeah and that dialogue over the at the end that voiceover i don't know just sort of put this somber tone on it that it was there's more to it than than there was so yeah i I don't know i don't know it's i think it's could be either way yeah for sure any other anything else thoughts or anything you want to bring up no no nothing from me and no other questions let's uh let's wrap this up where we Give it a rating out of five for an, an average between the two of us. So, hit us off. Look, I, I enjoyed this probably more for the intrigue and fascination with where it was going and, and what I was taking in. Um, on reflection, and this is compounded by the conversation we've just had, but there is a, just a lot more to take out of this um, than what's interesting on a surface level. Uh, I, I still think it felt a little bit thrown together, and, and you can feel the disjointedness from the fact that it was 48 years in production and had many, many hands across it, but still, yeah, still as intriguing and fascinating as I've seen in a long time. So it's three and a half stars. Nice. Yeah. I, 
I've, I've mentioned all of these things throughout, I guess, that I think it probably needs about three more watches before um, before anything really. And But I did. I fell down this rabbit hole of this film and, I mean, I watched that, the, the feature-length doco called The Love Me When I'm Dead, which is also a Netflix original. I watched that Final Cut for Orson, which is a 40-minute another doco on it, um, and this further added to this intrigue of, of what I, I was already into, I guess. And I, I, I probably I can't recommend this to everyone, but if you're mm. keen to spend some time with this film and do a bit more research and, and re-watch and look back over it, um, I think there's, there's quite a bit um, in there for you. And I'm, I'm going to give it a four and a half. Oh, um, I like it. Five. Yeah, I'm going to give it four and a half. So I guess it's an average of four. Which is you know what is nice? Hmm. With this podcast that we've committed ourselves to, um, and you and I are both, you know, we, we love movies. That's why we do this. We are by no means experts and we are by no means uh, full connoisseurs of, of film history. And I love to spend time dipping back and forth uh, with, with some classic films that everyone's seen that I haven't seen. And this podcast doesn't allow us to really do or doesn't allow us to do that and doesn't allow us to have these sort of conversations. And this is one example where we do finally get a chance to dip our toe into the history of film a little bit, talk about a big time director, talk about the time that th- this film was made, I guess we could say. Uh, and it's a really it's a really fun experience to be able to do that as opposed to talking about the latest rom-com that no one else wanted to pick up so Netflix put on their platform. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, I, and... Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. I think that hopefully the next few episodes are going to give us a bit more of an opportunity to, to have some bigger and better stories with, you know, uh, Bird Box, I think, is coming up soon. Roma is coming up soon. All, the, all those types of films that we know very soon. Yeah, Bust very soon, yeah. So, um, yeah, some, some big-name directors with some big stories that we can probably go back into a bit more depth like we have with this one. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, no, it was just, it's just uh, uh, honestly, it was like, it was like I was preparing for a completely different podcast. It was, it was so fascinating to do. Good. Well, um, we have social media. We have Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Pop a question up every week. And this one you've already answered anyway, so um, it's a bit useless to ask you now. But do you, <laughs> do you think it plays like a fully realised movie? And you, you, you've mentioned that it felt a bit disjointed to you. So thank you for already answering um, my pre-prepared question. <laughs> it did a little bit, yeah. It did a little bit to me. Um and I think I just, but it's hard when you're conscious of it too. Like when you, when you know what's happened for it to get here and every time you feel like something's a little bit off, you're like, oh, that's why it's off. And, and, and maybe it's unfair, but it wasn't, it wasn't overly um, disjointed, but there was enough there for me to think that, oh, was this supposed to be there? Was that supposed to fit here? Is that cut only there because you didn't have enough footage to show for the rest of that? I don't know. So there's a bit of that. Good. All right. Well, um, we're back again. Next week, mm. another 2018 film. This one is a historical drama and historical drama. Um, and I haven't watched this one, but I know of this one, and it's called Outlaw King. It's uh, directed by David McKenzie, stars Chris Pine, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Florence Pugh, Billy Hole, Sam Sprell, Tony Curran, Callum Mulvey, James Cosmo, and Stephen Delane. Up and ready. That's a, I think I know one thing about this film, and I'm pretty sure it's that Chris Pine gets his junk out. Well, I, I like the fact that we're, we're not going directly back in. We're, we're still going with a historical big movie. So we're jumping from Orson Welles and not going straight back to like the next Christmas movie. That there's a very, there's very 
many Christmas movies coming around, which I can't wait for. But they're kind of easing us back into uh, they've gone with the big Orson Welles movie. Plus, hey, this is a bit of a historical epic, true story about a you know something that you didn't know about in the 14th century. So I'm all right with that. Good, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing Chris Pine's um, bits and pieces. I'm glad you are. <laughs> we saw enough in this film. Very true. Um, thank you, as usual. It's been um, a good good one to chat about. Absolutely. I would have been disappointed if I couldn't chat about this film with someone. Good. And um, I'll see you next week. See you then, mate. <laughs>